scaling this wall just as easily as I can walk. My fingers alone are adhering, supporting me. Is anybody out there? Roll up! Roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci-fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here your host, Dr. Leyland. And we're picking up right where we left off last time. Issue 46 again shows the growth of Ramita's confidence in handling Spider-Man as a new villain, the Sinister Shocker, shoots vibro-shocks at Spidey but instead destroys a stone pillar, Spider-Man not being dumb enough to just stand still. The issue opens with Spidey being vibrated off a wall and further investigation leads to the culprit, the Shocker. The Shocker is the second villain to be created by Ramita and one I've always liked. He's a thug, pure and simple. No ulterior motive, no grand plan to rule the New York mobs. He just wants wealth, and robbing banks is the easiest way to do that. He's also a pretty cool design. His costume is quilted to insulate him from his own power, which I always thought was quite clever, as he's not enhanced or anything. All of this power comes from the vibro-shock gloves he wears. This all leads to a tangent. There was a rumour for years that the Shocker's power, plus that the costume comes to a V-shape at the belt, meant that the original name for the character was the Vibrator, which would have been hysterical, as Spider-Man would have let him have it with both barrels. Although it's doubtful those kind of jokes would have flown with the comics code. An interview Ramita did with Tom Spurgeon dispelled that myth, but the rumour persists. We later learn that the Shocker is a two-bit thief who built his equipment himself to crack safes, Again, we won't learn his real name, Herman Schultz, for decades. Due to his injured arm, Spider-Man is easily defeated first time round, which follows the formula Stan was adhering to at this time. An opening gambit that Spider-Man loses, some subplot stuff, followed by a climax where Spider-Man defeats the villain by outsmarting him. This issue follows that template to a T, and as usual, the Peter Parker moments are what we are reading for. Peter takes his photos of the Shocker to the Bugle, but on the way runs into Harry. Harry tells Pete that Norman has sprung for an apartment near college for him, and it has two bedrooms. He asks Pete if they want to be roommates. This is a major change to the strip, and is a move to reducing the page time devoted to Aunt May, as well as continuing to grow Peter as a character. To be fair, May has been trapped in a cycle of repetitive storylines for a while now, and this is a good way of getting Peter into more varied and dangerous situations regarding his secret. Harry presumably isn't as gullible as May, so coming and going as Spider-Man may be a trickier proposition. Harry also asks Peter to ask MJ out so he can ask Gwen and make up a double date. Peter worries that Gwen and Harry have been spending a lot of time together. This was weird. Whenever we've seen Gwen, she's been with Flash and Harry, not just Harry. Sure, Gwen and Harry go way back to high school, but they never seem like a couple to me. In fact, the last time we saw Harry, he was alone with MJ. Harry drops Pete at the bugle where he sells his photos for quite a decent sum, being exclusives. However, unbeknownst to Peter, Fred Foswell dons a disguise, basically a Mission Impossible-style mask and eye patch, to follow him to see how he gets his exclusive pictures. Peter wanders over to Penn Station to meet Aunt May returning from her holiday, and she too has news, although they both prevaricate about saying it. It turns out Aunt Anna wants to move May in with her, now MJ has her own place, and Peter is made up at this news. In an important story point, he mentions May selling her own house to give a nice stipend, and also freeing them up financially. 
This is something that will keep coming back as subsequent writers, including Stan, won't remember that May sold the house. Peter takes May to Anna's where MJ is also visiting. They both go to the silver spoon where the gang are hanging out. Gwen is dancing. Romita has slowly been glamming Gwen up, removing the Ice Queen facade she used to have, altering her hairstyle and dressing her in more up-to-date fashions. Apparently this was a stand directive and Romita wasn't too comfortable with it. He didn't see Gwen as a miniskirts and go-go boots kind of girl, and he felt it led to MJ and Gwen being too similar. MJ is wonderfully catty about Gwen's dancing. She's not bad, not good, but not bad, until we remember that MJ is a professional dancer. She has dancing gigs which she gets paid for. She could blow Gwen off the stage, although we don't see it on panel. Weirdly, although the gang are reading the Bugles report about the shocker and they mention the pictures, nobody asks Peter about it. They all know he's a Bugle photographer at this point, and Flash even says the pictures are probably fakes, refusing to believe his hero has been beaten by a new villain that wears a sleeping bag as an outfit. Peter tells Harry that the Flatshire is a go and leaves to pack, and also go and look for the shocker for a second bout. As he walks, Peter thinks about how much of a knockout Gwen is. The thoughts of Peter are interesting. It's no secret that Stan wanted Gwen and Peter to be together, and they are more compatible. Peter has never even thought about MJ in terms other than how gorgeous she is. He's commented on her flakiness and don't really care attitude, whereas he's quite respectful of Gwen's intelligence and looks. He discards these thoughts and nips into an alley to change to Spider-Man, and is almost caught in the act by Foswell. In one of the silliest conceits of the era, Peter rolls up his mask and has a conversation with himself, all for the benefits of Foswell, in which he convinces Foswell, who can only hear the conversation, not see it, that Peter and Spider-Man have a deal whereby Peter takes photos and they share the money. He then stuffs his costume with webbing and sends it flying up to a nearby rooftop so as to seem that there are two people. Foswell is fooled by this. This is more like a 50s Clark Kent Lois Lane thing and raises far more questions than it answers. It'll stick around forever, even though we never find out if Foswell told anyone else about the deal. Still, it's done and part of the canon and the second half of the issue is the resolution of the Shocker storyline, which isn't that deep consisting as it does of punching. It's a fine fight, again nothing particularly inventive, but fun all the same, and it concludes quite simply. Spider-Man realises that the Shocker presses down with his thumbs to make the gloves work, somewhat like a joystick, so he webs Shocker's thumbs back to his shoulders. Smart. He instantly counteracts this smartness by thanking the Shocker for posing for pictures after he's webbed him up. Any smart crook would start wondering why Spider-Man took photos, and after seeing him in the paper, put two and two together. The next day, a tearful Peter and May leave the house they lived in, and Peter moves his gear in with Harry. There has to be room for further scenes with Harry, as they seem to have become really fast friends pretty quickly. Peter stands alone in the apartment living room as Harry nips out, and he wonders why he's never happy. Well, Pete, you were happy a page ago, so... This felt like Stan and John trying too hard to give this issue a bittersweet ending. I'm sure none of the readers of the time would have minded if this was a reasonably content Peter Parker, just once. I know I wouldn't. Overall, though, this issue begins a run of stories that are up there as my all-time favourites, certainly after the Ditko stuff. There is a lot happening in this issue, and it's nice to be reminded of a time when a single issue could contain a lot of changes to the strip in an otherwise normal story. It was formulaic in its structure, but that didn't in any way hinder the story. 
Every now and again, it's nice to just have a villain who is just a villain, with no connection to Peter or his friends, and therefore no angst. All of that came from the Peter Parker plots. The connection between Peter and Spider-Man and their deal to sell photos is a bit daft, but whatever. The letters page has been addressing Marvel characters ageing, and the first letter suggests that Marvel time happens slower than real time due to continued issues and so forth. Stan likes the idea, and this may be the first time the phrase Marvel time was used in a comic, so well done Lee Verko, the letter writer who coined the phrase. Amazing Spider-Man issue 47 has yet another great cover. Craven the Hunter stood on the spider signal as symbolic little spider-men, spider-mans jump, swing and punch around him. In the hands of the Hunter opens with what may be the first proper bit of retroactive continuity implanting in a major Marvel comic book. We see the Green Goblin flying around as Craven the Hunter attacks Spider-Man and we learn that Craven has been promised 20 grand if he finishes him off. This is supposedly from Craven's last appearance in issue 34, but I'll be damned if I could find a way to make it fit. Nevertheless, Spider-Man escapes and Craven meets up with a flunky of the Goblin to discuss the money. The flunky turns out to be Norman himself, which makes no sense. If the Goblin can afford to hire a bunch of thugs to rob a bank, as in issue 39, he could afford to hire someone for this meet, unless he didn't trust anyone. If that's the case, meeting him as the Green Goblin makes no more sense than meeting him as Norman. That seems like an incredibly big risk to take. And it turns out to be such, as Craven follows Norman home. The flashbacks end with Craven being released from prison, which makes no sense because he's not an American citizen, and learning of the Goblin's death after breaking into a morgue room of the Daily Bugle. He decides that Norman Osborn will pay the Goblin's debt. Here, we see a Craven that isn't as honourable as he paints himself. He never completed the job, the death of Spider-Man. He therefore isn't owed any money. He heads to Norman's office to be told he's left for the week. Craven takes the news well, in that he doesn't skin the receptionist alive, and then he demonstrates his new vest, which fires a newly developed ray that he can use to magnetise the electrolytes of a foe and thus paralyse them. I have no idea if any of that is scientifically plausible, but it sounds good. The reason Norman is out of town is made clear when Norman visits Harry and Peter to wish them well for the party tonight to see our Flash who has been drafted. At ESU, Gwen plays hard to get when Peter asks for help studying, which to be fair he takes on the chin as he's been blowing her off a lot recently. There's a lot of cameos here from Betty and Ned, who Peter asks to flash his party, to John Jameson on the end of a phone call to his dad. Stan is at the top of his game with the dialogue, be it the teasing between Peter and Jonah, You think I'd cheat on you? Every chance you'd get, to John also teasing his dad, I can't mention your name, Dad, I wouldn't want to start another war, to Jonah moaning that Ned and Betty are going for dinner at the time they are actually allowed to go for dinner. This is great material. Craven, meanwhile, is a common thug, attacking Norman's butler and trashing his lobby just to make a point, emphasising that Craven isn't an honourable hunter at all, just a bruiser. The party looks like it's at the Silver Spoon, which makes sense, as that's where a lot of the kids seem to hang out most of the time. It's a fascinating look at the character dynamics of the time, with Peter pining over Gwen, Gwen seemingly having lost interest, Mary Jane high as a kite, Harry happy to stir the pot, Flash just a mass of hormones, and everyone else just along for the laugh. 
Betty may be marrying Ned, but she still wonders which of the girls Peter arrives with, Gwen or MJ, he's into. Ramita continues to develop Gwen, adding the headband and making her look different to MJ. The dance-off between them highlights the rivalry, but I honestly think in this instance MJ should have crushed Gwen. MJ's a pro, remember? The party is also an explosion of colour, looking like a 60s Batman episode or a monkey's TV show. Speaking of explosions, Craven comes barreling through the wall, seeking Harry, of all people. Once again, showing his true colours, Craven is seeking Norman's son as a down payment on what he feels he's owed. Of course, Peter splits to make way for Spider-Man. This is a really good issue, breaking the staid formula of a few of the past stories and giving us the exact opposite of the Shocker story. This has never been more personal for Peter. Not only is there a real opportunity that Craven will reawaken the Green Goblin side of Norman, but Craven's attacking a party with loads of people Peter cares about. Lee and Ramita also show they are gelling as a storytelling team, as the various characters are all dragged into the plot somewhat organically. Ned calls the story in, necessitating Jonah running over to the Silver Spoon, as he has a personal connection with Norman, and Norman also hightails it back from his appointment to check out his son. Lee follows up on his earlier great dialogue with more funnies, as the Spider-Man Craven fight is chock full of typical Spider-Man bon mots. There is also one of the most exciting fights since Ramita took over, full of great moments and asides. Craven even beats Spider-Man here, thanks to the addition of the rays in his vest. The killing blow is only avoided when Craven spots Norman arriving in a taxi and snatches him instead. However, Norman's amnesia is so all-pervading, he has no recollection of Craven or the deal, and Craven, thinking the goblin has tricked him, lets Norman go. Spider-Man awakens and sees Norman plummeting to his death and elects to save a life rather than pursue Craven. For Peter, that's no choice at all. An absolute blinder of an issue with the usual minor gripes, but these are overridden by just what a corker this story is. Even the ending, with Peter in shadow as he hopes Flash returns from Vietnam alive, is in keeping with the story rather than a forced downer. Nobody calls Peter a coward for disappearing, an overused cliché by this point, given that they all know what he does for a living, and this rattles along at a magnificent pace, helped by some career-best dialogue by Stan. The trend continues into issue 48, The Wings of the Vulture. The Vulture swoops down on Spider-Man on the cover, wisely his face obscured, keeping some elements of the story a secret. The snow is falling thick and heavy as the story opens, and our hero searches for Craven. He's worried that swinging around in this weather will give him a cold, and as such he gives up the search pretty quickly after swinging by the municipal prison. The snow gives the story a different feeling, as I think this is the first time we've seen Spider-Man encounter such an adverse weather pattern. It's fortunate we swing past the prison, as inside the vulture is on his deathbed. Stan didn't seem to be concerned with giving villains real names, as we already mentioned, as this is the vulture's fourth appearance and we still don't know it. Even on his deathbed he's referred to as a vulture, although he will later be given the name Adrian Toombs. Ramita really apes Ditko in how he draws Toombs. Toombs summons his cellmate, Blackie Drago, and tells him where the spur wings are buried. Fortunately, it's right near the prison, and Toombs is shocked to learn the accident that put him here and may end his life was caused by Drago. Drago doesn't cur, and under the cover of night and the snowstorm, he makes a break for it. This is a really cool action beat, well drawn and paced by Ramita. 
Drago knocks out a few guards, steals a car and screeches off into the night to locate the wings buried just outside the gates. Interestingly, he doesn't learn to fly straight away. It takes him a few minutes to figure out how to use them and then he only manages to fly far enough away to escape the police. We find Peter the next day feeling rotten and he's sent home from school. Ramita continues to develop Gwen, swooping her parting to the side to give her a more glamorous look, a look that catches Peter's attention. Hey, sick, not dead. Harry opens his big mouth and points out how similar it is to MJ's hairdo, which it isn't, but Peter wants to punch his friend in the face anyway. Peter retires home to nurse his head and sees a television broadcast sponsored by Jonah about Craven. This is then followed up with a news bulletin that there's a new vulture in town. We haven't seen Jonah pay for a TV broadcast in quite a while. Meanwhile, Drago has made a helmet with a transmitter. I do love how all Spider-Man's foes have some level of mechanical or scientific acumen, and he sets about doing crimes. Romita really starts opening the art up in this issue, with lots of bigger panels that let the art breathe a bit. Sure, Standstill fills all the available space of some panels to burst in, but this is a more leisurely approach to pacing, which is a change from the densely packed early issues. I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's just different. Spider-Man takes off after the Vulture, after an afternoon of unrelenting crimes makes the news, and they encounter each other on one of New York's bridges, which Stan refers to in the dialogue as a tower. After rescuing a man the Vulture is kidnapped, the fight begins in earnest. This is a more interesting fight, not only due to the ruthlessness of the new Vulture, a man more than willing to drop someone from a building just to access the jewels in their briefcase, but for the fact that Spider-Man's on the back foot throughout the fight. This is also more visually interesting than other Ramita battles, taking place totally in the skies. This puts Spider-Man very much out of his element, with no buildings to swing from. He's also fighting a bastard of a head cold, and he passes out, but as he falls, the Vulture kicks him. Believing he has delivered the killing blow, he leaves Spider-Man unconscious and lying in the snow, thinking that if the fall didn't kill him, the cold surely will. Another great issue. Ramita is settling down now, and whilst this issue has very little forward momentum in regards to subplots, it nevertheless delivers a great tale. The ending is one of the most effective cliffhangers in some time, as we've all had a rotten head cold at some point, and we've all heard of people freezing to death, making this quite a relatable cliffhanger. The new Vulture is a great villain, even more of a badass than the original, and his cockiness is well handled. I first read this in the UK Spider-Man Annual for 1982, in which this and issue 49 were reprinted, and I acknowledge that that may be why I have such a soft spot for this story. Issue 49, from the depths of defeat, has yet another great Ramita cover, which I know is getting boring now, of Spider-Man being held in a clinch by Craven as the Vulture swoops in to punch him. You name it, runs the sparse cover copy. This one's got it. Opening with an excellent and wordless splash page, Spider-Man lies on the rooftop where we left him last issue. He is surrounded by the floaty heads of Harry, Jonah, Gwen, MJ, Aunt May, Craven and the Vulture. Stan brings the reader up to speed really efficiently, showing he's finally learned to let the art tell the story when necessary. Slowly, Spider-Man's fingers twitch, his eyelids open and he awakens, theorising the intense cold awoke him up which I'm sure is the opposite of how cold works, but whatever. He's still groggy though, and instead of wall crawling and web swinging, Spider-Man sensibly leaves the room via the fire escape and walks home under the cover of night. He manages to get home and passes out in bed. It's one of the more unusual openings for a superhero epic. 
Elsewhere, Craven is annoyed that the Vulture is stealing his thunder, and to prove his manliness, he fights Raja the Tiger, whilst talking to himself about how great he is. There's a paper waiting to be written about Craven's complexes and bravado. With his ego stroked, Craven leaps out of a window to locate the Vulture. He finds the winged felon committing urban acts of piracy by stealing diamonds from a helicopter, but Craven loses him when the Vulture flies away. Still, Craven now has his scent. And what of our hero? Well, he's starting to feel a little bit better, but his Aunt May has dropped by, as has Anna, Mary Jane and Gwen. After another interlude where MJ seems like she's only a few minutes away from a munchy high, Harry takes the girls to the Silver Spoon to give Peter some quiet. Peter lies in bed, quietly fuming he couldn't pop out and visit them. This scene shows there must have been a detente between Gwen and MJ somewhere in between panels. Here they are hanging out together without being chaperoned by Harry, Peter or Flash, and the banter between them is playful and friendly as opposed to being catty like in previous meetings. MJ just assumes Peter's temperature is because of her, and Gwen offers to keep MJ's flighty brain busy with a movie magazine. Stan's slang is hysterical. MJ calls everyone dad, Gwen calls MJ a bunny, and the two of them have an easy charm that makes these scenes crackle with joy, despite the silliness. As the day's shadows grow longer, the expositional news network informs Peter that Craven has found the vulture, and they are fighting amongst themselves at the Explorers exhibit. Ramita, again, paces the boot very well. The fight scenes between Craven and the Vulture are all outside, and as such, Ramita uses bigger panels, often four long panels per page. By contrast, the indoor scenes are smaller panels and feel more confined. Spider-Man, at this point, feels mostly fully recovered, and as such, nips out of the window, far more confident. Reflecting the change in mood, Ramita is eased off on the snow. It still covers the ground, but it isn't relentlessly falling from the sky like last issue. Spidey finds the dastardly duo, and it's time for the action portion of the script. Spider-Man takes on both the Vulture and Craven simultaneously, but they put aside their differences to work together. Fortunately, Spider-Man is much smarter than Craven and this new Vulture, and he ducks out of the way when Craven fires his natty vest rays at him, causing the Vulture to take the brunt of the blow. Then Spider-Man punches Craven with the same blow that once felled the Hulk, and Ramita has a great comedy beat over three panels where Craven wobbles, wavers, and then collapses. With the villains vanquished and the photos taken, it's all over bar the epilogue. Peter heads home to be examined by Doc Bromwell, who tells him he has that 24-hour virus that only affects comic characters whose writers need to have them be less strong for an issue. With a clean bill of health, Peter takes Anna and May out to the cinema. After all, they can't all be downbeat endings. This is a slight but thoroughly entertaining diversion and continues the uptick in quality after the slight downturn of the last few Ditko and early Ramita issues. The strip feels different now, but it's at least back on track on a quality level. Of course, this was all leading to what many believe to be Lee and Ramita's best issue together, Amazing Spider-Man issue 50. If you're listening to this, I'm sure the cover needs no hyperbole, one of the most iconic and memorable covers in Marvel Comics history. Peter Parker, his head down, slumps away from the turned back of Spider-Man. It's a simple but striking image, with the colours aiding the art immeasurably. Spider-Man, no more, opens with another almost wordless splash page. Spider-Man is tackling a bunch of trigger-happy mooks who are clearly trying to rob wherever they are as bags of money litter the floor. A man and a woman cower in the background, implying that once again our hero has saved the day. 
It's a stunning Gramita page, leading into a typically frenetic opener. Spider-Man has apparently looked into a payroll robbery, and whilst the woman in the office seems effusive in her praise for the wall crawler, the gentleman seems to have suckled at the fake news teat of Jonah Jameson's Daily Bugle, and fears Spidey is a public menace who is out to rob the payroll himself. Spider-Man is understandably irked by this, after all he was shot at, and he quite reasonably blames Jonah for the tide of public opinion being against him. He doesn't have a lot of time to worry about it, as when he arrives home, Harry informs him that Aunt May has taken a turn for the worse. Peter torches himself over this, feeling that if he were at home, at college, or any of his usual haunts, Anna would have been able to get a hold of him quickly. But no, he was out being Spider-Man, saving the lives of people who hate him. The next day, Professor Warren has a gentle conversation with Peter about his grades which have been slipping. When we're used to seeing characters in comics coast along, happily coping with jobs, secret identities and superheroing with no problems, it was nice to see Stan and John address this. Peter spends a lot of nights being Spider-Man and then taking his pictures to the Bugle, and it's nice to see this being acknowledged as taking time away from his other endeavours. Unlike the early Ramita issues, this seems to be some considerable time after the previous issues. The trees are still without leaves and people are still wearing coats and jumpers, but it looks like it could be up to a month or so later than the previous stories. This is borne out by May taking a turn when she is previously seen to be in recovery and Gwen and Peter's relationship. Gwen asks Peter to a party at her house and she reacts with flirty disappointment rather than anger. Gwen still has the parting sweep, but is also starting to rock the infamous headband. At home, Peter wallows in more self-pity, wondering why he hasn't taken Norman Osborn up on his offer of work. Of course, he knows the answer. Spider-Man. He can't get away from the name, as upon switching on the TV, he is Jonah once again on a tour against the wall crawler, even offering a $1,000 reward for his capture, which seems quite cheap for Jonah. Jonah's words cut deep. Peter starts to wonder if he is an egomanic. Wouldn't only someone who was mentally disturbed go out looking for trouble as he does? Is he, in fact, a menace? Why would anyone choose a life of danger with no financial remuneration? After all, what has been Spider-Man brought him other than misery and unhappiness? If the unexamined life truly isn't worth living, Peter Parker's life is like no other's. Taking a walk through the city streets, Peter decides that Jonah is right. He's neglected his aunt and his studies and his friends and all for what? A gaudy costume and public apathy? Peter realises that in everybody's life there must come a time when a child must put away his childish things and become a man. To that end, he strips off his costume and dumps it in the trash. Was this the first time a superhero quit in such spectacular fashion? I mean, Peter quit briefly in Amazing Spider-Man issue 18, but not really with this level of drama. Lee and Ramita do a good job of giving Peter a reason for calling a day in this issue, but really this is over 45 issues in the making. Being Spider-Man has caused Peter nothing but grief, so it's not a surprise that this long bubbling idea would finally boil over. A lot is said about the cover, and rightfully so, but page 8 is equally deserving of praise. As the rain pelts down, Spider-Man's costume takes up a lot of the foreground image as Peter walks away. The only thing that hurts it is Peter's loud yellow jacket. Who the hell thought this was a good colour for a moody scene like this? Sartorial choices aside, what an image. The next day, an eager beaver kid runs into the Bugle office, an office apparently devoid of any kind of security, with Spidey's costume. Jonah is ecstatic, so much so he offers the kid a free copy of the Daily Bugle as a reward. 
What a guy. Jonah quickly ushers out a special edition, and within hours, everybody is talking about it on TV talk shows and highbrow think pieces. Even the underworld is discussing it, not least in the offices of Wilson Fisk, the kingpin of crime, making his first appearance in a Marvel comic. Even the mysterious Patch, who we know as Fred Foswell, spots something is up when the word on the street turns sour and he's locked out of meetings with various underworld types who, without Spider-Man in the picture, are making their moves. Once again, we're seeing a narrative here that has to be taking place over a longer period of time than it seems. For Jonah to appear on a late-night talk show and then for the Kingpin to gather his forces, we must be looking at at least a couple of days. Peter pops by the bugle to tell Jonah that he won't be taking photos anymore. Stan's dialogue is funny in this scene with him bemoaning Peter's loss and saying he never paid Peter top whack because he didn't want to spoil him. Foswell, also present in the office, wonders if Peter quitting when Spider-Man does is a coincidence, which is a tad odd given that he's the only other person who knows about the relationship between Peter and Spider-Man and their deal. With no Spider-Man to stop him, the Kingpin makes bolder and bolder moves, and I can only assume Daredevil's too busy pretending to be Mike Murdock to get involved. The lack of Spider-Man means that Stan gets to focus on the supporting players more and not feel that he has to keep pushing them off screen to make way for action. Peter still thinks Gwen has an interest in Flash, but she is so into him she accepts a lift on his bike, holding him for dear life. Neither of them were protection. Peter drops Gwen at home, referring to him as neighbour, so she can't live far away, and then he goes to check on May. Anna and MJ are there, but MJ has to run due to having an audition. What the audition is for is never explained, but we can assume she's going to be dancing at the What A Way To Go Go Club. With May on the mend, Peter finds himself with so much free time he doesn't know what to do with it. He studies and listens to music, revelling in all this luxury. The music is interrupted by a newsflash about a welfare office being robbed. Peter worries that without that money, the handicapped, the old, the infirm and infants will struggle and he rips open his shirt to leap into action before remembering that this isn't his problem anymore. The next day, Harry asks him about it whilst flicking through the morning edition of The Bugle, but Peter, in a sentence I don't believe for a second, says, I only had time for the sports section. Peter Parker has never shown any interest in sports. Peter is somewhat surprised to learn that now that he is available to them, his friends and family have lives of their own. How inconsiderate of them to not make Peter the centre of their world. However, whilst riding his bike home, Peter witnesses a mugging on a rooftop, of all places, and he strips off his shoes and scales the wall to help. Moving too fast to be seen, Peter stops the criminals and refuses to stick around, not only to hide his face, but because there is something familiar about the guard being robbed. Down at the docks, Peter has his hero's moment. The guard reminded him of Uncle Ben, and this, in turn, reminds him why he's Spider-Man. It's not because he's a glory hound or a nut, or even for the money being Spider-Man brings Peter Parker. It's because he can't permit anyone to come to harm again because he failed to act. Not only is this as magnificent a summation of Peter Parker's credo as possible, Ramita tells the story beautifully in his art. A shadowy Peter stands on the docks, his fists clenched and the shadows of night falling around him. Could he be any more heroic? Sure, we could point out that we don't really need another page-long retelling of the origin, nor do we need another Uncle Ben flashback, but let's remember Stanley, Steve Ditko and John Romita didn't return to this well much at all. That's all on later writers. And for a birthday issue such as this, it seems perfectly warranted to me. Elsewhere, the plot takes another twist. Fred Foswell, in addition to being Patch, was also the big man until he was captured by Spider-Man and jailed. 
Having served his time, Jonah gave him a second chance as he had good underworld contacts and was a good reporter. This actually paints Jonah in a pretty good light. Still, the racket all coming under the Kingpin's auspices is vexing Foswell and he offers his services but as boss, not as lackey. Foswell has stones, I'll give him that. The Kingpin is not impressed and orders Foswell iced. Across town, as the sun rises, Peter Parker scales the bugle's external wall seeking Jonah's office. Old Flattop has Spidey's costume framed and mounted and Peter steals in and retrieves the red and blues. He waits until Jonah arrives, telling him that Spider-Man is back and not only that, but he's been recruiting an army of Spider-Men just to annoy Jonah. With that, our friendly neighbourhood hero leaps out of the window, announcing to all that will listen that Spidey's back, baby. One of the best issues of Amazing ever, and one that never fails to entertain, no matter how many times it's been homaged and ripped off over the years. The story, such as it is, is just a chance to revisit Spider-Man as a character, and ask why Peter still does this. Although I do think there's an element of Peter being addicted to the adrenaline of it all, which isn't addressed. Still, Ramita and Lee deliver a classic issue, with many memorable moments. The first year of Ramita as the new artist for Spider-Man was not as groundbreaking or innovative as Ditko's era, but then again, what is? Ditko and Lee essentially rewrote the rulebook on superhero storytelling, and this is just a summation of what makes the character so good. Before Ramita really got his feet wet, the series fell into a formulaic rut, but these issues are no worse than the last few Ditko issues, where it felt like even the great man himself was starting to lose interest. One of the things no one ever considers is perhaps that's exactly the reason Ditko left. Maybe he was just getting bored. Ramita came in and didn't want to rock the boat, and as such we were treated to some fine but middling adventures. With issue 44 though, Ramita jumped in with both feet, not so much getting wet, but submerging himself in the water. After that, each story built on the last, and the strip returned, if not to the previously scaled heights, then to at least the level of mild vertigo. Ramita stopped imitating Ditko and embraced the characters as his own, culminating in this great anniversary issue. And I hope you, lovely listeners, enjoyed these stories as much as I did. Rest assured, wherever the muse takes me, our friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man won't be far away. Love him or hate him. Everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Byrne, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes. I got a question though, I just am curious. Why doesn't Green Lantern have any junk?
Hello. We're back after that message. A um, couple of things before we, we dive into the email bag for today. Um, the Thunderbirds episode was what we would call a troubled production. And for some reason, when I was doing the editing on that, it dumped a lot of audio from the first Thunderbirds movie into and over my audio. And throughout that entire episode, I had to go back and re-record little chunks of the show, be it one sentence to an entire paragraph in some cases. I think it turned out all right. But the reason uh, I mention this, because in listening back to it, I don't think you can tell that I've done that. But I, um, I just want it to be out there in the podcaster sphere that that was a very troubled episode, like um, like Rogue One and Han Solo, and it involved multiple reshoots and retakes, and as such, didn't do as well at the box office as we would have hoped. Uh, secondly, some of you may be wondering why I have split this Spider-Man, um, John Romita's first year as Penciler of Spider-Man, into two episodes, when I clearly recorded it all as one. Well, that's mostly true. Uh, my throat dried up around issue 48, so it, it, it was recorded in two blocks, but not in the way that you heard it. And the reason for that is I did listen back to it as one long clump, and it ended up being around 75, 80 minutes in total, which isn't that long for a podcast. There are some podcasts that go on for much longer than that. But I honestly felt that just listening to me drone on for 75 minutes was a little bit dull. And it's not like with an episode like that, as composed to the Thunderbirds one, for example, it's not like you can drop in audio clips or opening credit themes or anything to break up the monotony of just listening to one person drone on and on and on. So I felt it was better for everybody's sanity, including my own, if I split that into two episodes. Now, I will, as you've probably noticed by this point, be releasing them pretty close together. So if you're one of those people who prefers to listen to the whole thing in one go, you can do. But I felt that just listening to me on and on and on on about John Romita for however long was a little bit much for me to expect you to listen to. So splitting it up seemed to be the way to go. As ever, I'm sure you will email in with your thoughts, whether that was a good idea, whether that was a bad idea, whatever. I am open to your suggestions um, because, you know, as, as I've said many times before, I'm making this up as I go. There is no podcast handbook. I mean, there probably is now, but there wasn't when we first started. So I kind of just do what I think in my gut is right when I listen back to the show. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, let's delve into the email sack. Amazing Spider-Man episode 8. I had to work out the Roman numerals there. The last web slinger is from Nathaniel Wayne. Hello there, Andy. Hello, Nathaniel. Always nice to hear from Nathaniel. I am so close to being caught up, but there's still a bit to go. I just listened to your episode on Spider-Man issue 99 and your thoughts on Steve Ditko. Lovely work as always. It got me thinking about the cost benefits of some of my favourite heroes having been brought to a definitive end. Because there is definite value in a story being completed. But then again, that would have meant Spider-Man ended before I was born and I might never have gotten into him. And Spawn would be my favourite superhero. Not sure I'm up for that world. Well, I'm going to interject though. I think there's a lot of there's a lot to be said here for cultural differences. I think Japan, Europe, and here we're used to the story ending. We're used to the the myths having an end. Robin Hood has an ending. Excalibur and King Arthur of the Round Table. Those, those stories have endings. Blake Seven had an ending. Everything of that kind ended. 
the myths come to an end the story ends in america that's not so much the paradigm the paradigm is very much the story keeps going until it doesn't keep going anymore so your television the 50s 60s 70s 80s shows didn't have endings per se i mean we can always come up with the exceptions to the rule like the fugitive and magnum pi and cheers but for the most part shows just carried on until they stopped and then they could go into perpetual rerun it didn't matter and it was the same thing with comic books uh, michael bailey has referred to them as being stuck in the constant second act the third act never happens the the ending of the story never happens had spider-man been finite if you'd followed the European paradigm, the, the books would have just been kept in constant print, like Asterix and Tintin and all of that stuff. So new generations find it, even though they're not actually making new episodes anymore. And it just becomes part of the pop culture landscape that these stories were this story and it ran for this amount of time and then it ended. But new generations of kids get into it over the years so i think it's probably likely you would have found spider-man had the paradigm of how you publish comic books and stories like that been different in the united states than it is in the rest of the world as ever i await people's opinions on that that's just my outsider's opinion but i think there, there's some merit to it is that we're used to stories having an ending doctor who you know notwithstanding Nathaniel continued, as much as I tend to favour Marvel over DC, as I get older, I have more appreciation for one of the things DC does more often, or at least they used to, up until the run of the new 50 poo. And I refuse to apologise for that childishness of that joke, because it is no less juvenile than most of the books were. <laughs> well, Nathaniel, you know your audience there, mate. I think new 50 poo was funny. <laughs> Sorry to the people that don't have my juvenile sense of humour. And that is legacy characters. Marvel has rarely gone for them in more than a brief stint. But back before DC lost its way, I think there was real value in their legacy model. Characters like the Green Lantern, the Flash, and even Batgirl never went away. But who was behind the mask changed. It allowed the characters and the types of stories to continue, even as the characterization got refreshed, without having to undermine what came before. It also allows for a cleaner sectioning off of different eras of the character. Sadly, DC didn't know what they had and got into that iconic version bollocks. I complained about that in my last email. Now that I've started talking comics material on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, did my list of seven comics tropes I can't stand, I might have to devote some time to talking about the lost asset that was legacy characters. Uh, yeah, go on. I'm on record on Hey Kids Comics as saying legacy characters are a huge mistake. I have, over the years, come to change my opinion on that. Largely because of The Flash. Um... I love Barry Allen. Uh, I loved Wally West. And I think there was merit there to having the sidekick take over the role of the mentor, which was originally the point of the sidekick. And when they just washed all that away to bring back Barry Allen to be able to do the TV shows and all of that stuff, I did feel slightly pangy about that because the Wally West that I'd seen grow up through the new Teen Titans and into his own series, all that suddenly didn't matter. Um, so I have, I've come to change my mind about certain legacy characters. Now, I don't know how I'd feel if they carried on that paradigm into Superman and Batman. Well, could they get away with putting someone other than Bruce Wayne under the mask? I mean, Batman Beyond kind of pulled it off. But that, again, was a finite thing. It wasn't a continuous thing. The rest, the world knows Bruce Wayne to be Batman. 
Just like, you know, Diego de la Vega to Bizarro. Although I don't know how many men in the street, and I use man just as a term, know that uh, Diego de la Vega is Zorro. <laughs> Maybe I use the young example. Though. But anyway, you know, Clark Kent, Superman, Bruce Wayne's Batman, etc., etc., etc. And I wonder if they could get away with legacy characters in that particular instance. Funnily enough, continues Nathaniel, now that I think about it, Marvel did try to pull a legacy move with Spider-Man, but fortunately it was all tied into the Clone Saga. Part of me wonders if there hadn't been such a disaster of a story at the heart of the thing, if the transition from Peter Parker to Ben Riley had actually worked, you could have your swinging, single and not stable job Spider-Man again without having to torpedo his personal life for the umpteenth time. Oh well, hindsight and all that. I've said for years, go back and listen to episodes of Hey Kids where we talk about this. I've said for years, I honestly think that if Marvel could have found a way to make Ben Riley have the Peter Parker name and be able to inherit certain aspects of his life, they would have stuck with that version and Peter and Mary Jane would have been off having the baby. And I think that's the version we'd have stuck with. I think the big sticking point with that was suddenly Ben Riley was Spider-Man, not Peter Parker. And this goes back to what we were just discussing about Bruce Wayne is Batman, Diego de la Vega is Zorro, Clark Kent is Superman. The version that everybody knows, and if you start messing with that, there's a, a real possibility that the general audience will go, who's this guy? And I, I do honestly think that about the Clone Saga. I think if they could have found somewhere for Ben Riley to be Peter Parker, it would have worked. Keep up the great work, and don't worry, correspondence from me will never dry up because I'm too damned opinionated to keep my thoughts to myself. Uh, and long may it be so. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you for emailing in, Nathaniel. Uh, our final email tonight is for Andrew Morton. Hey, Andy. Hey, Andrew. I love Jerry Anderson's work, and Thunderbirds is probably the best of that great bunch. I had Thunderbirds 6 on video as a child, so I watched that far more than Thunderbirds are go, but I enjoyed both films. I actually like the dream sequence in the latter, as well as the song, but how much of this is due to my mother being a diehard Cliff fan, I cannot say. Whilst it is padding, it's fun padding, at least to me. Unlike the frankly tedious shots of the Mars buggy and the rock snakes. <laughs> yeah, that, that midsection needs cutting, mate. It really does need editing down. As for the gunplay in Thunderbird 6, he wasn't completely out of place, with a number of episodes also ending in good fights. The comedy is played up too, but again, I don't believe it was out of place, just showcased. I only watched the live-action film once and was disappointed by the lack of rescues. I honestly think the film could sit as part of the Home Alone series. Your Spy Kids observation sounds reasonable too, although I've not seen those. Uh, when my boys were both young, they both went through a Spy Kids phase. We had the first three on video. Uh, or DVD, whichever, I forget now, and they watch them quite a lot, so that's why I'm familiar with Spy Kids. Third one was 3D, if I recall, and actually came with a set of four 3D glasses so the entire family could watch the film, which I thought was neat. Didn't just come with one per 3D glasses. By the time the fourth one, or fifth one, or whatever, rolled around, they were, they were too old for it, and they'd moved on at that point. But certainly the first couple, I remember quite vividly, and Sylvester Stallone and Terry Hatcher in a couple. That sounds vaguely familiar. Anyway, as with Captain Scarlet, Andrew continued, I really enjoyed the recent remake, but have sadly only seen Series 1, as I couldn't find Series 2 in the schedules. I should try and track it down. It's available on Blu-ray from Network Distribution DVD. It's well worth buying. I like it a lot. Thanks for another great episode, and I look forward to hearing more Anderson things covered in the future. Thanks, Andrew Morton. Well, Jerry Anderson's never going to be far away. The big surprise with the Thunderbirds episode was why it took me so long to do it. 
You know, I was marvelling about that. I was why is it taking me so long to do a Thunderbirds episode? Anyway, um, as usual, proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You go off through the link, buy the Amazon, we get the kickback, etc., etc. You know the drill by now. And I will be back next time with whatever. I'm in the process of writing three different episodes, as I normally am with this show. There's normally two or three different ones on the go at once. And uh, we'll see which one bubbles to the surface first, won't we? See you next time, and remember, it's all going to be okay. Goodbye. L'araignée, l'araignée, elle peut être bien singulier. Dans sa toile, il attend d'attraper les brigands en garde, car l'araignée est là. Il est fort, agressif, il a pu s'en radioactif. Il s'envole sur un fil, il fait fi du péril. Attention, car l'araignée est là. Si parfois la nuit on découvre un mystère, l'araignée survit aussi vite que l'éclair. L'araignée, l'araignée, toujours là pour nous protéger. Il apporte des secours, il ne veut rien en retour. Pour lui, la vie est un combat là, et de l'action il y en a, quand l'araignée est là.